Amen. Well, before we do our scripture reading this morning, two important things. Birthdays. Have a Mr. Alan Abishan, and also my mom's birthday is coming up in a few days too. So we are going to sing Happy Birthday. If if we miss one, you can be included in this too. <laughs> so let's sing Happy Birthday to you. Happy birthday to you. Happy birthday, dear Alan and Mom. Happy birthday to you. <clears throat> All right. It's all the same. We just think in decades now. We don't think in years. Okay, scripture reading. Back to Corinth. First Corinthians chapter seven. Be a little longer today. Seventeen through forty. Only let each person lead the life that the Lord has assigned to him and to which God has called him. This is my rule in all the churches. Was anyone at the time of his call already circumcised? Let him not seek to remove the marks of circumcision. Was anyone at the time of his call uncircumcised? Let him not seek circumcision. For neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision but keeping the commandments of God. Each one should remain in the condition in which he was called. Were you a bondservant when called? Do not be concerned about it. But if you gain your freedom, avail yourself of the opportunity. For he who was called in the Lord as a bondservant is a freedman of the Lord. Likewise, he who was free when called is a bondservant of Christ. You were bought with a price. Do not become bondservants of men. So, brothers... In whatever condition each was called, there let him remain with God. Now concerning the betrothed, I have no command from the Lord, but I give my judgment as one who by the Lord's mercy is trustworthy. I think that in view of the present distress, it is good for a person to remain as he is. Are you bound to a wife? Do not seek to be free. Are you free from a wife? Do not seek a wife. But if you do marry, you have not sinned. And if a betrothed woman marries, she has not sinned. Yet those who marry will have worldly troubles. And I would spare you that. This is what I mean, brothers. The appointed time has grown very short. From now on, let those who have wives live as though they had none. And those who mourn as though they were not mourning. And those who rejoice as though they were not rejoicing. And those who buy as though they had no goods. And those who deal with the world as though they had no dealings with it. For the present form of this world is passing away. I want you to be free from anxieties. The unmarried man is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to please the Lord. But the married man is anxious about worldly things, how to please his wife. And his interests are divided. And the unmarried or betrothed woman is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to be holy in body and spirit. But the married woman is anxious about worldly things, how to please her husband. 
I say this for your own benefit, not to lay any restraint upon you, but to promote good order and to secure your undivided devotion to the Lord. If anyone thinks that he is not behaving properly toward his betrothed, if his passions are strong, and it has to be, let him do as he wishes. Let them marry. It is no sin. But whoever is firmly established in his heart, being under no necessity but having his desire under control, and has determined this in his heart to keep her as his betrothed, he will do well. So then, he who marries his betrothed does well, and he who refrains from marriage will do even better. A wife is bound to her husband as long as he lives. But if her husband dies, she is free to be married to whom she wishes, only in the Lord. Yet in my judgment, she's happier if she remains as she is. And I think that I too have the Spirit of God. It's God's Word. Amen. Amen. All right, children, dismissed. Let's pray. Father, we do just thank you for your word to us. We again, we just recognize this not as just the words of Paul to a city in Corinth, but also the words of the Holy Spirit to us. So I just ask that you would apply the words that we need to hear in each of the states that each one of us may be in, and that you would uh, encourage us, you would correct us, you would help us to live life devoted to you in whatever kind of life we live, whatever responsibilities we have. I ask that you would help us glorify you and to honor you. So teach us this morning. Help us to see your word as it is, not just as we would want it to be. So would you do that? In Jesus' name, amen. So, our world tells us how to make decisions about life. Things like marriage, work, where one should live, the products we buy. It tells us to make those decisions based on personal fulfillment. What suits us individually? Whatever will bring me experiences like sexual fulfillment and personal happiness. Curating and creating the kind of lifestyle choices that will bring about what I want. Justify what I feel, align with my truth, make me be who I desire to be, is the highest good in our world. If my marriage or non-marriage, my job or career does not fit, because we live in a mobile and global society, we can find a new romantic partner or a new career or a new location that fits better, feels better, aligns more with what I want. We believe that what we need to be happy and fulfilled is a change of circumstances, a change of spouse, a change of job, and then everything will be fine. Everything will be okay. I will finally be happy. Or with the internet, we don't even need much human interaction at all. We can isolate ourselves. We can have sexual fulfillment through porn. We can have happiness and status through social networking filled with all kinds of people that hardly really know us and only know us through what we post about ourselves. 
the pictures and words we want them to see. And so that is life in our world of how we make choices about things like marriage and career. But Paul sees fulfillment and identity differently. He believes that satisfaction in life comes through divine calling in any circumstance and devotion to Jesus Christ as the highest good. He believes something different than the world of Corinth had to offer or our world as a whole had to offer because the world is passing away. This world is fading. It is changing. The shape of the world now is not how it will always be. It will be remade according to different values. And so he looks through things like marriage, singleness, divorce, career, what you do in life completely differently than the world at hand. Whatever values are going on at whatever time, whether in Rome, whether in America, he's saying that the Christian has a totally different way of viewing everything and makes decisions and sees goodness and value in life differently. So, that's what we are going to look at. That's kind of the big picture. Obviously, there's a lot of verses. Um, I'm going to try to kind of handle this more in paragraphs. Um, But, I thought that there's so much that's related to one another, it was just good to kind of clump this whole chapter 7 together, at least the back half of it. So in the first part, I think what we have here in this first few verses of the first paragraph we're going to go over in, in verse 17 is something like changing your circumstances or even changing your own body will not change your heart. It will not change your heart. Only let each person lead the life. Again, I love these footnotes. Number three, if you have an ESV, walk in the way. Last week, kind of mentioned Enoch. What was Enoch known for? He walked with God. I'm trying to kind of reduce this to something simple. Each person leads the life, should walk with God, should put one foot in front of the other as they go about life, in the way that the Lord has assigned to him and to which God has called him. And so Christianity is a walk of whatever circumstances you find yourself in right now. And some wanted to change everything because they had been changed by Christ. It's kind of like, well, hey, Jesus is now Lord. He's Christ, so I just need to change everything in my life. Now, of course, there's parts that need to be changed. We're to repent from our hearts. But Paul says, no, it actually isn't so much about external change. It's about internal change. And we don't need to fit in to a particular value of the world. We need to be changed inside our hearts. He goes on, this is my rule in all the churches. Was anyone at the time of his call already circumcised? So again, the time of his call. What's call? Calling is all through this. He has a big picture view of what calling is. When people got saved, which Paul views not just as the choice of a person, 
I got saved because I chose Christ and I made a decision for Him. Paul's emphasis is always on grace, is always on the call of God. So he views it all as a call. Hey, when you were called by God, when God changed your heart, when you became a Christian, is what he is focusing on. Wherever you were at in your life. Was anyone at the time of this call already circumcised? Let him not seek to remove the marks of circumcision. Was anyone at the time of this call uncircumcised? Let him not seek circumcision. We kind of think, well, that's kind of odd. We don't really care too much about the C word in our particular culture. But in this word, it was a big deal. Excuse me, in this world of theirs was a huge deal. I found this interesting. One commentator said this, Greeks exercised in the nude. You say, why do you always got to do this to us and bring up these subjects? Well, that's because there, there's actually a good reason here. So, so hang with me. Greeks exercised in the nude, and both Greeks and Romans regarded circumcision as a mutilation. For several centuries, some Jews, ashamed of their circumcision in the predominantly Greek culture, had opted for a minor surgical operation and make them appear uncircumcised. And I found that interesting. So here you have a religious culture. There's obviously an identity marker here. I'm a Jew. I'm a part of the people of God. It's marked on my body as a man. Okay? In Greek culture, it was not. The uncircumcised. So here there's pressure. There's pressure. There's religious pressure. There's cultural acceptability pressures to change your body, to fit in to a particular world. And Paul is like, hey, it doesn't matter that much either way. Which, in a way, is a critique of the, sec- of the secu- uh, secular culture, but also a critique of the religious culture. So he's kind of critiquing both. You don't need to fit in with the irreligious world or with the pagan Greek world, nor do you need to fit in with the religious world. You need to be committed to Christ, Christ and His commands. That's what matters. Not what's on your body or not which group you're a part of. Man, I think there's a lot we could talk about there in our culture and changing of bodies and all other kinds of things. It's about heart issues. Christ is concerned about our hearts. Neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision, but keeping the commandments of God. It's about you before King Jesus and His Lordship in your life. So you don't ultimately need circumstantial change or even bodily change or a social setting change, but heart change. So view whatever and wherever you are as a calling, not a curse. You may say, I don't like my body. I'm going to change it. It's not going to fix it. I don't like my particular setting in life. I don't like my arrangement. I don't like my marriage. I don't like my non-marriage. I want to get married. All these different things that we have. And it's saying, hey, this is a heart issue. He's saying, Christians, wake up to who you are in Christ more than who you are in the world or who you are in your own body. It is about identity in Jesus Christ. That is our controlling identity as Christians. Are we people whose main goal is to be ones who keep the commandments of God, do God's will, trust in the person of Jesus Christ? So verse 20 through 24 There's this emphasis on remain where you are. And the emphasis is on wherever you are to be content in Christ and to see it as a divine calling. He doesn't say, hey, you became a Christian, so now change everything in your life. He's actually saying, hey, remain where you're at. Stay where you're at. Glorify Jesus wherever you're at. 
And so we should see our life wherever we are as a calling, wherever we are in our social setting, from housewife to career-minded person, we can glorify God and do His will. But that can be hard. We don't always want to hear that. We may not be really happy with that in the moment. To be kind of brutal, we may just kind of say, my life sucks. I don't like it. Ecclesiastes pretty much shows that. Life is going to be hard. You're going to do something, you're going to fix it, then it's going to break. Your husband's going to do this, your wife is going to do that, and things aren't going to always go the way that you want them to go. But Ecclesiastes says, that's right, that's the way life is. So what do you do? You enjoy it. You enjoy your wife, you enjoy your life, you enjoy your possessions, and you keep the commandments of God. You fear Him and you keep His commandments. It's not just about changing all of your circumstances, but enjoying God where you are at. And so we just see that all over this. Each one should remain in the condition in which he is called. Were you a bondservant when called? Do not be concerned about it. But if you gain your freedom, avail yourself of the opportunity. Now that's interesting too, because this is again a completely different culture than we live in now. We have this issue of slavery, servanthood, bond servants, freedmen, and all these kinds of different issues. And Paul's point is to show, hey, you're going to be serving somebody in your life. And that service should be ultimately to the Lord, to King Jesus. And I think it's helpful to kind of get some context here because we, again, don't live in that kind of culture. So I'm going to read a section that one commentator wrote on these several verses between verses 20 through verses 24. Household slaves, except those in the imperial household, were eligible for release after seven years. So again, we've got to think it's different slavery than thinking of American slavery. There's kind of a different dynamic going on here in Rome. The Christian slave was not to be distressed by his status. Here Paul does not demand that he must stay in his calling even if he is eligible to be freed, literally, but and if he has the power or right to do so, he could become a freedman. Freeing slaves is encouraged, although it was accompanied by binding obligations to one's master, who's now one's patron. Paul develops this theme by explaining that when called by the Lord to salvation, the slave undergoes a liberation and becomes the Lord's freedman. So in a sense of like, well, you're out of slavery now, but you know what? You're still in it. In the sense of, you are still enslaved to the master, to his calling. Paradoxically, this is the commentator going on, the freeborn citizen who becomes a Christian, becomes Christ's slave. Hey, you're not a slave in this particular culture. Actually, you are. You're Christ's slave. Again, the commentator goes on. Ransom money was paid for freeing certain slaves, and Paul alludes to the cost of Christ's procuring their freedom. He commands freedmen, excuse me, freemen not to become slaves of men. While it may seem extraordinary in the first century, Greek freeborn men did sell themselves into the household of Roman citizens, often holding the lucrative post of steward of a household. They could invest their owner's funds and run his business, legitimately accruing wealth. It was possible for them to buy their own way out of their voluntary slavery and thereby gain Roman citizenship as freedmen and for their offspring to secure Roman citizenship as freeborn children. It was not only wealth that counted in the Roman Empire, especially in a Roman colony such as Corinth, but calling, class, status, 
Again, Paul repeats that they remain in the situation in which God has placed them. Literally, each in which he was called, let him remain with God. While the young sought to be upwardly mobile in order to gain wealth and status, those in the church needed to rejoice in the providential ordering of each Christian's life. The covetous driven search for mobility was prohibited. So again, totally different dynamic than us, but some similar things. Status, chasing ambition, career, always moving up. And Paul is like, wait, hold on. Remain where you're at. But he always nuances it. There's these exceptions. Hey, if you can get free, great. Get free. So it's not just this kind of... We would have to be careful here because you could have like um, abusive situations or if you're just preaching this, remain where you're at. No, sometimes you can get out and that's okay. Paul even nuances this, hey, slave, remain. But you know what? If you can get free, great. But the point is, overall, you're to view it as a calling before God to serve Christ wherever you are at. Verses 25 through 31. In the next paragraph, paragraph, we view life and we view time differently than the world. That's what the Christian message is. A different view of life, a different view of status, a different view of identity, a different view of even time itself differently. And that we should look for the change of the whole world, not first changing your circumstances. Again, that's what we always go to. Kind of how to be a healthy person or how to be a happy person. Well, we've got to change this, 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 and this. And Paul is saying, hey, first you've got to have a whole rewiring of the way you view everything. The way you view the whole world. And Paul views life in a different way. There's three different parts here. Verse 26, verse 29, and verse 31. Of things that he says about the state of the world. In verse 26, he speaks of a present distress. In verse 29, he says, appointed time has grown very short. In verse 31, present form, or some translations say, which I like, the present shape of the world is passing away. So again, our view as Christians isn't just the world's all going to burn, it's gone forever, and then we're going to go live as disembodied people in the never, never, or whatever. Saying, no, no, this world is still going to be here, but it's going to be totally different. Everything has changed. The Christ event, the resurrection has changed everything. It will all be renewed. And so we view the whole values of the world differently. Oh, you think this is how it is now? No, something else is coming. There's going to be a different set of values coming on the way. You need to view this world, the thisness of this life in a different way because it's going to be changed. It's going to be remade. And so we should engage the world according to the values of the future world, not the present world. Not what it is now, but what it will be. So that this world, all the values now are going to change. Just like we can hardly even imagine living in, this, in that culture of Rome and freedmen. And, wow, I'm going to actually go be a slave for somebody and serve that household. Or, or no, I'm, I'm, I'm enslaved. And like, it, doesn't even, it's like, it does not even register. And so this world, 100 years from now or 200 years from now or 1,000 years from now, is going to be way different than all the values and things that we look at life now. And so we need to be focused on that future. That this world is not the end-all, be-all. Don't see wealth, social status, climbing career, busyness, buying and selling. All of these things in life that we live according to a different time scale. 
One word on the this present distress in verse 26. There's, there's a lot of um, debate about what that exactly was. Some people think it's just him focused on kind of the end of the world. Christ is coming immediately. It's going to be done and over. And there's clearly that sense in Paul. But it could also be, it sounds like, that there was a lot of other things that were going on here. One person says, There is firm archaeological and literary evidence which indicates that there had been food shortages in Corinth during this period. These were inevitably accompanied by panic buying and riots because of social unrest and uncertainty about the future. Hmm. Eleven inscriptions to the same person who was three times in charge of the grain supply in Corinth have been uncovered from this period. This office was only filled in times of famine, so there's good reason for connecting the crisis with the threat of famine. Tacitus also records earthquakes and famines. Many believe that these were divine portents. We know that Christians believe that the signs of tribulation would be famine and earthquakes. Point is, there was probably things happening like earthquakes. We ever felt that? Like concerns about what's happening in the future or the government or the this or the that or famines or crisis is coming. All that kind of attitude. It's kind of saying, hey, don't just kind of get caught up in all that. Look for a different shape of the world that is coming. And yes, it is a sign that the end is breaking in, that the end will come, but you still engage with the world, but you do it in a different kind of way. We engage in a third way, which he kind of mentions through 29 through 31. These interesting phrases of like, let those who have wives live as though they had none, those who mourn as though they were not mourning, those who rejoice as though they were not rejoicing. But he is saying to do it. It's like, mourn, yes. Yes, you're married. Yes, you grieve. Yes, you buy and sell goods. But you do it in a different way than the world does. Because the time is different. The world is going to be different. There's two different Greek words for time. There's kairos and chronos. I'm probably not saying that right. But in verse 29, the word kairos is used. In verse 39, the word chronos is used. And it reminded me of a book I read that had nothing to do with this particular passage. But I thought it was helpful in kind of asking, how do you view time? The way in which you view your marriage or your, sing- or your singleness and all those different things will be affected by how you view what time it is or where the world is going. There's one writer. The Greeks understood embedded in their language expressed in two distinct words for time is an intuition about the possibility of sanctified time. Time they knew has two faces, two natures. It exists in two separate realms. One is sacred time, the other profane. The first word is chronos, familiar to us because it's the root of many of our words, chronology, chronicle, chronic. It's the time of clock, Tick, I kind of like, like the tick, 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 tick. That's a chronos view of, of time. He goes on, the word derives from one of the gods in the Greek pantheon. Chronos was a nasty minor deity, a glutton and a cannibal who gorged himself on his own children. He was always consuming, never consummated. Goya depicted him in his work, Chronos, devouring his children. In the painting, Cronus is gaunt and ravenous, wild-eyed with hunger. He crams a naked, bloody-stumped figure into his gaping mouth. So he goes on, Cronus is the presiding deity of the driven, this view of time. But that there is another view of time. There's Kairos. This is time as gift, as opportunity, as season. It is time pregnant with purpose. In Kairos time, you ask, not 
What time is it? But what is this time for? Kairos is the servant of holy purpose. This year, this day, this hour, this moment, each is right for something. Play, work, sleep, love, worship, listening. Each moment enfolds transcendence, lays hold of a significance beyond itself. So, how do you view time itself? Is it just a clock ticking away? Schedules to be filled, productivity to be done? But ask yourself, what is this time for? In your life, wherever you're at right now, whether you're single, whether you're married, whether you're widowed, whether you're divorced, go down the whole list. What is time for? How do I view time? Do I have this kind of view? That this whole world is going to be reshaped to a different system with a different king. And do I live in that calling according to that purpose? It's a different mindset. Verse 32 to 35. I love just this first sentence. I want you to be free from anxieties. <laughs> like, oh, okay, I'll take that. I receive that, brother. Or whatever spiritual language you want to say. In our anxious age, in our pill-driven age, I want you to be free from anxieties. Man, what a, what a word for us. We live in an anxious world. We all know that. Lots of anxieties, lots of things to do. And we live in an attention economy. We have everything competing for our attention. Our phones competing for our attention. Streaming services competing for our attention. Everything competing for our attention. And what's Paul's goal? Undivided devotion to the Lord. That should be our guiding, organizing life principle. And in whatever state of life we're in, making that the goal. The unmarried man is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to please the, word, the Lord, but the married man is anxious about worldly things, how to please his wife, and his interests are divided. And I guess in, in, in Greek that both anxiety and division are similar. His interests are divided. So what does division do? It produces anxiety. And the unmarried or betrothed woman is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to be holy in body and spirit. But the married woman is anxious about worldly things, how to please her husband. But what's interesting is there can be different types of anxiety. Not all anxiety is necessarily sinful. And actually, it wasn't a therapist that mentioned that. It was um, John Calvin talked about different types of anxieties. The old Protestant reformer. This is what he says. I answer that there are three kinds of anxieties. There are some that are evil and wicked in themselves because they spring from distrust of these Christ speaks. Think about the verses in Matthew. There are others that are necessary and are not displeasing to God. As, for example, it becomes the father of a family to be concerned for his wife and children. And God does not mean that we should be mere stumps so as to have no concern as to ourselves. The third class are a mixture of the two former when we are anxious respecting those things as to which we ought to feel anxiety but feel too keenly excited in consequence of that excess which is natural to us. Again, good old old language. But he's saying, hey, there's different types of anxiety. There's some that's just plain wrong. But then there's a type that, no, so, hey, if you are a husband, if you are a wife, those anxieties aren't like, okay, well, I'm just going to get rid of them. I'm just going to abandon my duty. No. 
Those are actually good. Not to be a mere stump of a man or of a woman. But yes, there's going to be worldly concerns. And so, Paul is going after that. He's saying, hey, if you're married, part of it is you should look to please your wife. Or wives, if you're married, you should look to please your husband. And and there's kind of an idea there of delight. And so I was thinking of maybe some marriage questions. Things like, how do we free up each other's anxiety? How can I, as a husband, free up anxieties, concerns for my wife? Or how, as a wife, can I free up anxieties, concerns for my husband? How do you experience more delight, wife? Or how do you experience more delight in life, husband? And even above that, how do we devote ourselves to God more? What do we need to do to have that as the organizing principle of our lives? Verse 35, I say this for your own benefit, not to lay any restraint upon you, but to promote good order and to secure your undivided devotion to the Lord. So again, there's not this sense of pressuring from Paul. You better do it this way. He's not saying that at all. There's a sense of freedom. Well, there's this way and there's this way, and hey, this would be really good for this, and this might be good for the other. So, live in your calling before the Lord. And I think we really see this in these final verses. If anyone thinks that he is not behaving properly toward his betrothed, if his passions are strong, and it has to be, let him do as he wishes, let them marry, it is no sin. But whoever is firmly established in his heart, being under no necessity, but having his desire under control, and has determined this in his heart to keep her as betrothed, he will do well. So then he who marries his betrothed does well, and he who refrains from marriage will do even better. And one commentator actually asked some questions. I thought, man, that really opened up a lot of stuff for me in this passage. And this is kind of what he said. There's a different sense that he gives in, um, in how some church cultures can emphasize. He, uh, he says this, On over-anxiety to do the right thing, he asks, Are we sometimes over-anxious about identifying a single right course of action as God's will when several paths may be good? Might not the good remain good, whether or, not any, whether or not an even better might turn out to be a less distracting path? One path might be happier, verse 40, but the other need not be sin, verse 36. And There's this sense of freedom for the Christian. So at the first part of this, I was kind of cutting against things like personal freedom, personal autonomy, personal fulfillment, for good reason, because those are values in our culture that become God's. But we don't go to the flip side and then turn Christianity into kind of like this, this pressure. You've got to do it this one way. Oh, every single one of you single people, you better get married. That's where real life is. And see how Christian culture can sometimes do that or sometimes in seeking the will of God for your life as if there's going to be a, a voice from heaven or going to tell you who to marry or exactly which calling to engage in. But Paul's like, hey, It's freedom. It's freedom. Notice the freedom of the decision about whether to marry or not to marry here. There's no hyper-spiritual pressure. There's no voice from God on what to do. You see how Paul accounts for a person's autonomy, a person's freedom. But, yes, it's all under the authority of Christ, under His commands, 
his desires, but then it's kind of a sense of do whatever you want to do. You want to marry that person? Do it. Great. Hey, this other way might be better. Want to be single? Great. But not this, oh, you should really go one way or the other. And man, that can give a lot of freedom because there can be pressures in the society to be married or not or to live together or all these different things that we can get into. And there's even pressures sometimes in church of emphasizing maybe marriage too much and things like that. And we must be, be careful not to do that. But to know that as a Christian, you are free. Notice he, he, he doesn't say, hey, so wait for the voice of God to do what you're going to do here. Just kind of like, do what you want to do. Do what you wish to do. If your passions are too strong, you're kind of interested in her, get married. Simple. Now, of course, there's other parts of the Bible and Proverbs and all the kinds of things about, hey, it's not, it's not just like, well, hey, I really like that girl. I should marry her. That, that's not what he's saying. Because we've got to take the whole Bible as a whole. But there is this sense of simplicity, not this spiritual pressure. So for those in that stage of life, hear that. It's honor the Lord. Do what you want to do. Honor Him in that sphere of your life. And go for it. And so, we need to learn from that. Verse 39 and 40. 39 and 40. A wife is bound to her husband as long as he lives. But if her husband dies, she's free to be married to whom she wishes only in the Lord. Yet in my judgment, she's happier if she remains as she is, and I think that I too have the Spirit of God. So, just a few things about marriage. Again, he emphasizes the permanence of marriage. A wife is bound to her husband as long as he lives. Permanence. Are there exceptions? Yes, we talked about those in the other verses. But the emphasis of the Scriptures is on the permanence of marriage. Yes, there are exceptions. There are nuances. But as a whole, that's what it should be. You're bound to your husband as long as you live. But if her husband dies, now she's free. Free to be married whoever you want. So... If you want to get married after your husband has died, great, go for it. If you want to be single, great, that might be better too. But the options are after the death of the spouse. And he also closes in a little bit more. If her husband dies, she's free to be married to whom she wishes only in the Lord. He did have an exception of, hey, if you are called, if you, when you became a Christian and your husband is not a Christian, it doesn't mean, oh, See ya. I'm going to go find a Christian husband now. No. He's saying, no, you should win your husband to the Lord. But if you're in a situation where now you're in the option situation, do I get married? Do I not get married? Okay, I'm going to get married. Well, the only option is in the Lord. It's a believing husband or a believing wife. But that's the only kind of constriction. The rest of it, so we don't think of it as like a constricting thing. That's the commandment. We obey it. And then it's like freedom to decide which one you want to do. Just make sure he loves Jesus. Make sure she loves Jesus. Yet in my judgment, she's happier if she remains as she is. And I think that I too have the Spirit of God. And again, there would have been pressure in the culture for, for men and for women to get married. Men to be kind of the household leader and all that in the Roman culture. Women have, have babies and bear children and all of those cultural expectations. Paul's like, hey, Christianity... Single, married, either way. Point is, devote 
to God. There's, there's freedom here. Don't be bound just by the pressures of the culture or sometimes of church. There's freedom that He wants us to experience. So, live married or live single in this temporary fading world that is going to change into a new earth in a way that is devoted to Christ. That is seeking change of heart, not change of circumstances. And is obedient to King Jesus and loves King Jesus because He gave Himself for us so that we might walk in freedom, the freedom of forgiveness of sins, the freedom of a life that is dictated by Him and the values He gives on us more than the world. So in communion, emphasis union, it's union with God. It's union with Christ. It's reminding ourselves of our ultimate relationship and the ultimate bread and wine and body and blood that are going to satisfy us and give us freedom. The ultimate way to experience a relationship of total no shame, complete forgiveness, the love we ultimately long for is found in union with God. And so we remind ourselves in whatever calling we are in, we remind ourselves that one day there's a husband, a perfect one. There's one that loves us fully, forgives us entirely, and that we will see him face to face. And so we take the bread and the wine, grape juice, toward that union and looking toward that day. So that's what we're going to do while we sing.
was the payment His life was the cost We stood neath the debt We could never afford Our sins, they are many His mercy is more Praise the Lord His mercy is more Sometimes in marriage or things like that, you know, kind of looking for a spouse to satisfy every every need or every heartache. And this is just a reminder. Again, just imagine like a person like like knows you fully, all the way. That's what communion is saying. I know you. I gave my life for you. You're a sinner. You deserve judgment. Every single thing about you. And then I fully, absolutely, entirely accept you, give my life for you, lay it down to make you new and righteous. And that's what we're celebrating here. That that's our hope. We want that desperately in our hearts. Many people's lives are aching for that kind of... You're not going to find it in a spouse, ultimately. You have a partial peak. But that is found in this communion and one day in total union with God. So that's what we're going to celebrate as we do this. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Amen.
wonderful day.